0: The PAC, hosted by Sam Dyer. Welcome to the OrthoPAC, where we discuss up-to-date orthopedic topics for the busy clinician. I invite you to sit back and relax as I attempt to fill in the gaps between education, current events, and real-world practice. Welcome back, listeners. Today's episode is on a topic that was recently presented at our orthopedic boot camp, and it's titled, Orthopedic Urgencies and Emergencies. It's my pleasure to welcome Caitlin Muldoon, who's a PA. Caitlin comes from Charlotte, where she works in orthopedics and does trauma. Caitlin, thanks for being on our podcast.
1: Yeah, thank you so much.
0: What is an algorithm to manage the knee dislocation? Let's say their pulses are intact or they don't have pulses. How do you manage it? What's the, the workup and when is it managed surgically?
1: X rays for everything, right? X rays help us identify that it is dislocated. And then your neurovascular exam will help guide where you're supposed to go from there. So if a patient has pulses that are present and normal, then ABI should be obtained. If the ABI is greater than 0.9, so it's normal, then you just do serial clinical examinations and serial ABI measurements to make sure that stays the same. If the initial ABI is under 0.9, then you need an arterial duplex ultrasound and a CT angiogram. Otherwise, as a runoff study. If patients are absent or diminished, You need to confirm that the knee, if you've tried to reduce it, is reduced, or do the reduction if you've not yet done it. After reduction, you'll repeat your vascular assessment and the same guideline. If the ABI is greater than 0.9, serial examinations. If it is under 0.9, then arterial imaging is necessary. When we talk about surgery, generally ordering arterial duplex ultrasound, you're ordering a CT angiogram for the extremity. That's what I'm calling vascular surgery to get them involved. Vascular surgery repair takes precedence over the MSK repair. They generally go to the OR, and if they need us to stabilize it, we'll typically follow with an external fixator or an open reduction internal fixation. When we're talking about patients, you might see outpatient who are post-reduction. If We're talking about a delayed ligamentous repair, and those generally should happen in under about three weeks for the best outcomes.
0: Sure. And and these injuries, I mean, you get your ACL, PCL, meniscus, probably some collateral ligament injuries. All that being said, long-term complications, I guess, obviously osteoarthritis, but are there any other concerns about them getting stiff, losing motion, that kind of thing? And I guess with neurovascular injury, you got to think about that too. What What are some complications from this?
1: Yeah. So the most common complication is stiffness and that's because we want it immobilized once we get it reduced. The amount of stiffness that patients experience increases with the longer that they are immobilized. It's pretty common for a lot of orthopedic things. Other things uh, that complicate it include laxity or instability. That's why we do and consider there's uh, ligamentous repairs and perineal nerve injury, which creates a foot drop. So the patient might need an AFO after this.
0: Got it. All right. So Caitlin, we're at the last one. And this is this is one I I really actually see fairly often. A low percentage of them actually have to go under the bright lights and have pins put in, but I have seen some that are are pretty nasty. I wanted to ask you who gets these. Uh, obviously, kids. And I would still say I I'm you know I want to lobby for the outlawing of monkey bars, but so far I, no one's taking me up on that. You describe a Gartland classification system. Can you go through that a little bit for us and, and talk about supracondylar humerus fractures?
1: Sure. So monkey bars and trampolines are the two biggest cause of pediatric fractures, and that's documented in the literature. So you're very right. They're more common around kids five to seven years old, and that's because of the elbow physiology at that time, and boys just as much as girls. They're the result of a food injury um, and typically follow an extension pattern. When we talk about classifying them according to the Gartland, we're talking about using a lateral elbow x-ray, and the Gartland 1 is something that's non-displaced and we will put in a long arm splint acutely and then a cast for definitive treatment. The Gartland 2 and 3 talk about disruption of the anterior and posterior cortex, and those are the ones that can have more complication and really need more of an urgent evaluation
0: Right, right. And yeah, if, you know, according to that classification system, if the, the fracture is displaced in any direction, then it's going to require surgical intervention if that anterior humeral line doesn't intersect the capitellum. So that that's key. And that's another thing I want to put out there for our listeners. These should make you kind of uptight because if you miss this... There's a thing called a gunstock deformity that kids will develop, and it's really not good, and that's going to make you liable. So, if you see a supracondylar humerus fracture, if you think it's a supracondylar humerus fracture, anterior humeral line on the X-ray, on the lateral X-ray, is very important that you measure that. What else can we say about elbow supracondylar humerus fractures?
1: I think having a high suspicion for it and knowing that's really the pediatric emergency, and then... When we're looking at x rays, also just look for that posterior fat pad sign. If you have a presentation that's really suspicious for it, kids tend to self limit a lot more than adults, I think. And so if they're not using that arm, even if you don't see something that's outright, you can treat it like an occult fracture.
0: Yeah, I, I do see these a lot. So, and usually when they present, I mean, their elbow is really swollen, they're guarding it that's a lot different than some of the other things that you might see a torus fracture or whatever. It's definitely usually pretty dramatic and you can see it. That's all we have for this series. Caitlin, I hope I can bring you back on to talk about some of the case studies. You presented some interesting cases there in Charlotte. I think that will be helpful for our listeners. I love that. Yeah. Any other thoughts or comments on today's episode?
1: I think that, orthopedics is a really interesting field but some of this stuff makes us all a little uncomfortable because we want to be really good at managing it so keeping a high index of suspicion and depending on your setting just knowing where to send these patients or knowing how to take care of them can alleviate a lot of the stress associated with
0: that well said i have my upper extremity guys on speed dial (laughs) (laughs) caitlin thank you so much for being on our podcast today
1: awesome thanks sam
0: Thank you for listening to the OrthoPAC podcast. Listeners, our fourth annual Ortho in the West conference will be arthritis to arthroplasty February the 17th through the 19th, 2023 in Phoenix, Arizona. The details are on paos.org website. Registration is open.